You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where unlike Rex Stardust, no one on the show has had to have their elbow removed following their recent worldwide tour of Finland. Nothing so loud Hearing when we lie Truth is not kind And you said neither am I And the air outside so soft Welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Engel, and my job on the show is to cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones coming out between cover date June 1990 and cover date November 2004. All the while on the show, I'm putting a special emphasis on my two favorite Green Lanterns, Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. And we've come to a point where in Kyle Rayner's run, I'm going to be brutally honest and say I'm really not enjoying it. Yes, it's come to it. After almost over a hundred issues of covering Kyle Rayner, I'm finally almost at the point where I'm willing to stop talking about the show or stop talking about the comics because they're just annoying me that much. Specifically in the issue today, Green Lantern number 173, which has some of the most egregious problems in the book I think I've ever seen. <sighs> Thankfully, it's not dealing with Kyle Rayner's character. He's actually coming off quite well in the book. It's what Ben Rave, the writer we've had for the past couple of weeks on the show, is doing with Jenny Lynn Hayden. He's destroying that character, and it's frustrating me to no end. But I'll give you specifics about this after we play a couple of promos, as we usually do. Then, of course, we'll get into coverage of the book, which, sadly, I'm not looking forward to. Green Lantern, number 173. Sorry, folks. Let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hard-working people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of thought. This looks like a job for Superman. Yeah. <laughs> 
for Captain America! It's a dying man! It's the Rocketeer! Gentlemen, you're up. <laughs> Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. Most of the time I talk about comics movies and TV shows in general. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics themselves, so I use every eighth episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality to subject the show to a borderline pornographic level of analysis, partly just to shoot the breeze about this awesome show and partly to show the naysayers just how wrong they are about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. And of course, I talk about Smallville in a way that's unrivaled in detail, unparalleled in epic scope, and unspeakably awesome in its awesomeness. Because I am Magnus, and awesome is how I do everything. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus talks about Smallville. Every 8th Tuesday, only at 2TrueFreaks.com. Hey kids, do you like comics? <laughs> do you like Iron Man comics? <laughs> Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor. Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more. Hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. Uh-huh. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition. On iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Gotcha, or maybe... Dragon! How about Tatsuo! Or In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember Our Star Blazers? Or this? The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. 
Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Team grappler ships dead ahead. It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it. Or. If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of? And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under 2TrueFreaks Presents Anime Freaks. Okay, we are back. And I'm going to try and keep a positive attitude about this. I was kind of negative in the intro, saying that I really hated this book, but maybe taking another look at it and maybe having fresh eyes on it and going through my notes, I'll I'll have a better attitude about it. We'll see. Regardless, it's time to get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 173. Green Lantern number 173 was cover dated March 2004 and released on January 28, 2004. Wow, this is the last year. This is the beginning of the last year I'm going to be covering Green Lantern books. I'm, you know, it, it's not really uh, an amazing thing that I've, you know, done this. I mean, it's simple. Do the next comic in order. It's, uh, it's a index show, so it's really doesn't really all take all that much brains. But the fact that I'm almost to the end of this just surprises me, and that I'm in the final year of the comics. I'm rambling now because I don't want to get to this book. Ugh. Okay. The cover price of the book is 225 US and 350 Canada and the title was Wanted Part 3. The writer, if we can call him that, was Benjamin Rabe. The penciler was James Bosch or Jim Fern, you know, obviously he went under a pseudonym because he didn't want to be associated with this. Sorry. Try to be positive, try to be positive. The inker was Rodney Ramos, the letterer was Jared K. Fletcher, the colorist was Moose Bowman, the associate editor was Stephen Wacker, let that sink in, make your own jokes, and the editor was Peter Tomasi. Aboard the Green Lantern space pirate ship, former Lantern Shalandra Thane bemoans the fact that Kilowog let Kyle Rayner go off on his own to return the Quartian scientist to Amon Sur. Kilowog says that he has faith in Kyle, and that they need to find out just what Ammon needs the scientists for. This explanation isn't good enough for Shalandra, who feels that Kyle will have to do more than just pose as a criminal if he wants to convince Ammon of his convictions. Meanwhile, Kyle is in a lone shuttlecraft, charging his ring one last time before he docks with the Black Circle's flagship. As the ship enters the talking bay, Kyle, now in his maroon Shadowhawk slash Vasquez disguise, complete with bitchin' face tattoos, is greeted by slutty Nagamora, who gives him just three seconds to explain the unidentified energy spike on his ship. Vasquez tells the Jade Juggalo that it was from a reactor leak, and she can check it out if she'd like. But the standoff is shut down by Amon Sur blasting Nagamora's gun out of her hand. 
Vasquez says that Ammon is lucky to have someone like that watching his back, and Ammon comments that she's got eyes like a Thanagarian hawk and nothing gets by her, because her reflexes are too fast. Oh wait, no, that's Drax, I'm sorry. Anyhow, Vasquez and Ammon continue to chat until they reach Ammon's trophy room. A trophy room filled with the taxidermied corpses of Green Lanterns he has killed. And he has a special place reserved for the Green Lantern of Sector 2814. Back on Earth, Marin and Miss Chase are fending off the unexpected robot attack that has interrupted Marin's interview. Luckily, Marin has dealt with these claws before, and manages to rip the laser gun arm off one of them and dispatch the rest rather handedly. Every pun intended. Crisis averted, Miss Chase reveals herself to be Agent Chase of the Department of Extra Normal Operations, and she and Director Bones think that Marin would be an excellent addition to the organization, especially with the recommendation that she unknowingly got from her boyfriend, John Stewart. Cut to Kyle Rayner's apartment, where Jenny and haughty Emerald McFever are enjoying a bottle of wine and some Chinese takeout. Hottie says he doesn't feel too comfortable about getting his DNA all over Jenny's boyfriend's stuff, but Jenny doesn't seem to mind. In fact, she wants to open another bottle and see if she can get quote-unquote Mr. Stiff to loosen up. But as Jenny opens the next bottle, Hottie heads for the can to take care of some General Sal's after-effects when he comes upon Kyle's sketch room and the engagement ring he'd left there. Angered, Hottie leaves in a huff, but Jenny tries to convince him that the ring was for his dead ex-girlfriend, and when he proposed to her, she turned him down, and that she's really drunk and really horny and probably would let him do her in a very uncomfortable place, like the backseat of a Volkswagen. Get my drift? No, I'm sorry, that doesn't happen, but in my mind, that's what Jenny is thinking. Regardless, Hottie heads out to find a woman to date who might be less of a whore, Maybe Carrie Limbo and the Traveling Carnival is in town, while Jenny mopes over her being a stupid, stupid cunt. <sighs> Back in space, Shalandra and Benai exchange backstories so the reader can see that Ben Rabe at least did a little homework on some of the characters in the book, unlike Jenny, who he just wrote like a complete skank. And then we cut back to the Black Circle flagship, where Abad is bringing the Korean scientist out of stasis. As the Cordians revive, Ammon takes Vasquez to the device that the Black Circle and the Cordians have been working on, a quantum singularity generator. It's the device that Ammon has used to create the blind, and it's also how the Cordians plan on transporting their homeworld to the matter universe. Of course, that will require the destruction of the planet occupying the same space in the matter universe's cord, the Green Lantern homeworld of Oa. Okay, I guess I didn't really maintain any level of calmness or civility throughout that throughout that review. As angry as I am about Ben Rabe, or as angry as I am about how Ben Rabe is portraying Jenny in the story, I'm actually kind of enjoying the Black Circle bits with Kyle and Ammon for what it's worth. 
I'm certain Nakamura will probably see through the ruse pretty quickly, and there will probably be some consequences. Copyright Allen and Emily Middleton 2014 All Rights Reserved dealt out for Kyle. And that is good storytelling. However, the stuff on Earth, especially with Jenny, makes me want to throw the book across the room all Web of Spider-Man 100. This had better have a good ending where Kyle tells Jenny to GTFO, or I might just have to revise my opinion of issue 37 of this run being the worst story told in the third volume of Green Lantern books. This is really getting on my nerves, and even though the Kyle parts of the story are really good, this one scene with Jenny and her stupid quote-unquote boyfriend makes me hate this book with a passion. <sighs> Let's look at the positive. Look at the positive. We'll start with the cover. Uh, again, uh, the cover's uh, really a nice cover. It's a very vibrant, very eye-catching color. I think the colorist, whoever's coloring it, does a really good job. It's a sort of that pastel green look. Kyle looks good on it. It's a very different look for Kyle. Uh, Kieran Grant has a more sort of harsh line work. He's not as smooth. But it, again, has nothing to do with anything in the book. Unless you consider, you know, this is an image of Kyle facing down the Black Circle characters like not Gamora, but he's in his Vasquez uniform rather than his Green Lantern uniform. So, but it's an eye-catching cover, so I'll give it that. Page three. This is a nice splash page, but I don't understand why Amon's ship has a big green lantern symbol on it. It's basically a giant sort of ball ship with these two little warp nacelles, I guess, to the side, and a big belt with a green lantern symbol strapped around it. It's a weird design. Maybe it's not his, specifically his flagship, but maybe it's his green lantern trophy ship, so maybe that's what it is. Page four, if Kyle's goofy ruby shadowhawk armor wasn't 90s enough for you, his face tattoos and ponytail should put him over the top. I guess that's what he was doing when he charged up his ring for the last time was changing his appearance so no one would be able to determine that he was actually Kyle Rayner and not this Vasquez character. Yeah, obviously, obviously Jim Fern or James Bosch, whoever he wants to call himself who are, was the artist in this book has a love of the nineties because man, this is, this is a nineties character right here and now. Plus on the same page, I forgot that a few issues back that Karina, who I've been calling not Gamora was the slutty Greedo from issue 168, where Shironova went into the cantina and talked with her. And it was basically a reenactment of the Han Solo Greedo uh, scene from Star Wars. So I could completely not put these two characters together because at the time that was Rick Burchett drawing her. And I think he drew her to be a little less hoochie mama, if that's even a thing. Moving ahead, pages eight and nine. Does this seem to be a thing for Green Lantern foes that they like to take their kills and do taxidermy of them? I know Fatality did that. She had some of the heads of the Green Lanterns or their lanterns in her little storage locker thing in her ship. And now Amonsura has actual, it looks like stuffed bodies of various lanterns here. So 
that's kind of creepy, I guess. Page 10, as we get to the scene with um, Rin and Chase, Bosch's or Fern or whatever he's going on, uh, art is a, a little bit off. The Just the dynamics of it, the way people are positioned here, I'm specifically looking at the bottom panel on this page where it looks like the robot has thrown Chase, but then it looks like the robot himself is diving over a chair. It's just weird angles on things and weird positioning in the characters. It's not the uh, that the art is bad, but the composition and the flow of it just really isn't... It really belies the idea of uh, a certain set piece going on throughout the book. So there you go. Page 13. I guess last episode I made the assumption that this might be Agent Chase from the DEO, and it actually turns out to be, because we also get Agent Scully, a.k.a. Mr. Bones, making a cameo. And then all of this was set up by John, which kind of begs the question, will Moren find out about John setting this up? And if she does, will she be upset that he did, or will she be thankful? It kind of seems to me that she'd be kind of, it'd be kind of demeaning to Moren in the story, saying that she couldn't get a job unless John vouched for her. And I could see if Ben Rabe were allowed to write that story around, Moren might have a problem with John basically calling the DEO up and getting her this job when she should have been able to get this job on her own. If John would just said, you know, I know someone in the DEO, here's someone you can contact and maybe they'll have a job for you, that would be better. But John kind of working around her, you know, working behind her back and not letting her know that she was doing this interview on his recommendation, it's kind of demeaning to her as a character and it's demeaning to her as a strong female character, so... That's kind of disappointing. And now we get to the part of the book that I'm going to have the most to say negatively about. Here on page 14, Jenny calls Hottie her boyfriend and says that they've been together for months. Are we supposed to think that they haven't done the deed yet? Are we supposed to think that Jenny has been monogamous all this time? Because she certainly seems to be working towards that avenue. It seems that she's working towards getting him in the sack. And if they haven't, Jenny trying to get him drunk and loosen up makes it feel like she's actually trying to get him to do it if he hasn't. She is actively pursuing sex rather than this guy. And initially in the story, it seemed like this guy was trying to make it with Jenny. So it's making Jenny look to be the one who's wanting to actively engage in a coupling act with this guy, which in my opinion makes Jenny just, it just frustrates me. It does. Page 15, when Hottie looks for the bathroom, he comes across Kyle's sketch room and he sees the file cabinet with the words, what was I thinking on it? He then has to rummage around in it because it doesn't look like there's a ring that's lying on top of it. So maybe Hottie is trying to find a way to get out of this relationship with a person who would actively cheat on you if you leave the room for more than 15 minutes. I mean, maybe I should give more credit to this male character because he realizes that Jenny is being a psycho nut. <sighs> which, again, frustrates me. 
And then final insult, page 16, Jenny completely does not redeem herself, saying that, oh, the ring was for his dead ex-girlfriend and I rejected him, but I want to spend time with you. Ugh. Good job, Ben Rabe. You've made me actively hate a character in the book that I'm not supposed to hate. Pages 17 and 18, we get uh, the backstories of Shalandra Thane and Benai Bun. Essentially, it's just Ben Rabe doing his due diligence and looking up these characters, which is fine. At least it shows that he's trying to show that he knows a little bit about the Green Lantern run and the Green Lantern history, and he can give the history of these characters, which again, I think is a nice contrast to what he's doing with Jade, because he's completely screwing that character over. Pages 21, or sorry, 20 to 21, I will admit here, uh, Bosch or Fern does a good job rendering the quantum singularity generator. It's it's not immense. It's uh, It looks probably like it's smaller than a Star Destroyer, but it's really detailed. I like the look of it. It's not quite Kirby tech, but it's got a lot of neat art design on it. It's a, it's a very nice splash page. And then we get a kind of nice ending to the book with the Cordians wanting to replace their home planet of Cord in the Matter Universe, which happened to reside right where Oa is. And I think that's kind of a neat idea if this is actually Ben Rabe's idea that Oa occupied the same place in the Matter Universe that Cord did in the Antimatter Universe. And I don't know whether this was... A conditional, or this was conditional on how Hal Jordan could easily travel back and forth between the matter and antimatter universe, since Oa and Cord were essentially occupying the same place in different universes. If this is an invention of Ben Ray, that's kind of neat. If not, it's a good callback to that, and actually I think it's a sort of compelling ending to the story. So I guess I did find a little that I did like in this book, just not very much. I think the overshadowing image of Jenny just being a complete and utter tramp or being written that way has just given me a lot of distaste for this book. Again, hopefully my distaste will be lessened by finding some interesting ads in the book. And it's not starting out so good as we get the Juicy Fruit ad for the weird, what, Strappleberry flavor which I guess is a mixture of strawberry and apple, a weird hybrid fruit. I guess GMOs are bad. Is that what I'm supposed to take from this? Then after that, we get an advertisement that says, no one's taller than the last man standing. It's for the Namco game iNinja, which sounds like the crappiest app you could ever have for your iPod or iPhone. It's a ninja game for the PlayStation 2, GameCube, and Xbox. No idea again. Oh, and then this is cool. We get an advertisement for the WWE SmackDown, which was appearing Thursdays on UPN. Does anyone remember UPN? Yeah, that was that was a network. Uh, essentially, this is kind of a nice trip down memory lane because this was uh, about the time UPN was getting ready to get folded in with the WB and make the CW. UPN had some interesting shows, but in the end, after XFL and losing Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Enterprise really not taking off, uh, they just kind of floundered. But SmackDown was on UPN for a while, I guess. There's that. 
And this is kind of neat. You get an advertisement for Comic Book the Movie. It's the movie directed by Mark Hamill. It stars, it looks like it stars a lot of uh, voice actors. I've seen Tom Kenny, uh, Billy West. Of course, Mark Hamill's in it. I've heard this. I've heard this movie is highly recommended. I've never seen it before. I don't know whether it's a sort of documentary or it's an actual movie, but it, it looks like fun. It's a neat little advertisement for it. So if you haven't seen Comic Book the Movie, I would probably recommend checking it out since you're a comic book fan if you're listening to this show. After that, you get another advertisement for or an advertisement for Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles. Never heard of this one. It's not one of the numbered ones. The art style looks more like the sort of link, uh, a link to the past or the sort of more cartoony, less uh, photorealized versions of the characters. Again, never played a Final Fantasy game, but I guess this is a uh, entry in the Final Fantasy over, if you'd call it that. After that, we get an advertisement for the DVD of The Grind. I think we covered this a few issues back. This was a movie that was released by uh, E.K. Gaylord III or whatever, or E.K. Gaylord II, who was the Oklahoma newspaper magnate. He was essentially the William Randolph Hearst of Oklahoma. Not that that's saying much, and not that this movie's really saying much, but I guess they're trying to advertise it, so good on them. Then in the middle of the book, we get an advertisement for The Sims Busting Out, which, of course, is, I guess, an expansion to The Sims game. They say it's available on the GameCube, Xbox, PlayStation 2, and Game Boy Advance. I wonder how interesting it would be to play this on the Game Boy Advance. That's kind of a, a sort of advanced game for that system, but whatever. Uh, another video game advertisement for uh, R Racing Evolution, another Need for Speed type game with a sort of anime-inspired female race driver who, of course, has her uh, her uh, racing uniform unzipped down like to her belly button, showing off a lot of cleavage, because that's exactly how you dress if you were racing a high-speed performance vehicle in a deadly uh, you know, F1 type race, of course. Then we've got a two-page ad that's on two consecutive pages. It's got these two little kids, a little girl, a little boy sitting down on the sofa. And at the bottom of the page, it says, I'm not a ninja, but I play one on TV. And it's for the PlayStation iToy, which was essentially a crappy version of, like, the Kinect. Or I guess, well, I can't remember what the PlayStation version of it is. I think the, I think the PlayStation Move is what it was. But this is essentially a little camera that you set on top of the uh, TV. And uh, as far as I can tell, they're still not flat screen TVs. These are still CRT TVs. And you hook it up to the PlayStation and then you do little catchy games. It, If I recall, it was pretty... <laughs> it, it very wasn't very responsive and really didn't work out all that well. So they were trying Kinect stuff even before the Kinect actually worked. So good on PlayStation for at least making the attempt. But essentially, it's the power glove of the motion capture thing for video games. After that, we get another advertisement for an Alienware computer. This time, it's an Alienware Area 51 laptop, which is kind of cool. Like I said, it's got the stereotypical gray alien eye sort of look on it. And they also advertise the uh, stand-up or the uh, desktop model as well. So Alienware computers, those were fun. 
another advertisement for Kaya Dark Lineage. Again, we've talked about this the past couple of issues. It's the sort of anime-influenced character in a belly shirt holding the spinny disc bladed thing. Uh, once again, they're advertising the heck out of this, but I have never heard of this game and have no idea whether it's good or not. But then for a change, we finally get a house ad, and this is an ad for Aquaman number 15. It says that the first issue in a shocking new direction. I guess this is the the water hand Aquaman because he's back in the uh, the gold shirt and the uh, green trunks. Uh, it's written by Will Pfeiffer and penciled by Patrick Gleason. Uh, covers by Alan Davis and Mark Farmer. It it looks interesting. Unfortunately, I have no, basically no knowledge of the water hand Aquaman. I've got to assume it's probably more entertaining than the hook hand Aquaman. At least by Rob Kelly's standards, I would think it would be. The back inside cover is an advertisement for Sonic Heroes. And essentially it has a bunch of old superheroes, like gentlemen in their, I would say, in their late 60s, early 70s, balding and looking kind of wrinkled in their superhero outfits. And underneath them is the new set of heroes, which is Sonic, Knuckles, and Tails, because obviously they could replace the uh, superheroes of lore. But then the back outside cover is actually a pretty cool advertisement for a movie. It's uh, Hellboy, which appeared on uh, 4-2 of 2004. Hellboy was a great movie. Uh, of course, directed by, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Guillermo del Toro. Really fun movie, visually very interesting. And Ron Perlman, very classy guy. If you didn't know, Ron Perlman has done some things with like... Um, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, where he's actually dressed up in full Hellboy costume and gone to some hospitals and talked to kids who are, who are tragically sick and everything. So, uh, first of all, kudos to Ron Perlman for doing this. And it's an actually really interesting and visually entertaining movie. So Hellboy was really fun. Check it out. But that does it for the comic. Thankfully, the ads kind of gave me a little bit of hope. Sad that the ads are giving me more hope than the comic. We'll see where all this goes in issue 174 of Green Lantern, which we'll be covering next week. I guess I have to get to reading it sometime soon. Regardless, thank you all for suffering through this episode with me, suffering through this issue with me. Hopefully the episode wasn't suffering. And we'll see you next Friday on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, everyone, have a good week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. 
Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys podcast, and you, you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was the song All I Want from the band Toad the Wet Sprocket, off their album Fear. Toad the Wet Sprocket was originally taken had originally taken their name from a Monty Python comedy sketch, which I referenced in the show opening, so definitely check out Monty Python as well. Where can you check out Monty Python and Toad the Wet Sprocket together? Why? Amazon.com, of course, where you can buy audio from either one of their albums. And the best way to get to Amazon.com, of course, is through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. At 2TrueFreaks.com, the website, you will have a little banner in the upper left-hand corner of the page. Click on that banner, be transported to Amazon, and buy whatever your heart wishes, whether it be videos, movies, games, DVDs, toys, watches, whatever. And all for ridiculously low prices. Plus, every time you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to go to Amazon.com, any purchase you make there shoots a little bit of money back to the website. It won't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the 2 True Freaks out. So anytime you're thinking about buying some band from the 1990s that took its name from a Monty Python sketch, I would suggest you use the link first at 2TrueFreaks.com.